Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. And speaking of provocations, things that will not stand, uh, we have our first Waypoint this week. Which apparently Patrick just really wanted to get something off his chest about the Slate Political Gab Fest. Uh, Patrick, wh- why did you make me listen to David Plotz again after my glorious 10-year hiatus? Uh, man. Okay, so let me set up the Slate Political Gab Fest a little bit. So it's a uh, podcast from the publication Slate. Uh, I guess it's been going since 2005. Uh, I probably joined in around 2008. I'll get to that part because it's sort of an important part of the reason I even have brought this up at all. Um, and it's just, it is an early podcast, right? Like well, part of the reason it is important and foundational in sort of like the larger podcast text is because like it was a time when there weren't a lot of podcasts happening. And part of the reason it's popular and institutional is because 2005 was a really early time to like start recording like conversational thoughts about anything. That's stuff that happened in meetings and uh, podcasts kind of have, you know, didn't really come into their own until years later. Um, the three hosts have been a, pretty much a constant, I think, since the beginning, at least certainly when I started listening to um, John Dickerson, who is a political writer-reporter, who was, I think, a columnist at Slate, then uh, in the last, like, five years or so became a co-host, or a co-host and then host of Face the Nation, one of, like, the institutional Sunday shows along, like, Meet the Press, um, and now he is uh, one of the three hosts uh, on CBS's morning show, which I, I, I don't know if that's the Face name the of it. Nation, I think. No, no, Face the Nation's the Sunday show. He's also on the morning show. They do, is like, he on the morning show now? I didn't oh, know yeah. That. He took huh. the spot when What's-His-Face got booted for being oh, a shit egg. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, Same he's on the morning show. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And still does a really great uh, a podcast every couple of weeks um, about presidential history. Um, anyway. Uh, yes, what's the stop? Uh, uh, Emily Bazelon, who also a Slate writer, who is now one of them, uh, a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine, has a legal background and is frequently like takes the position on uh, if if J- if Dickerson is like the contextual historian, then uh, 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 Emily Bazelon is sort of like the legal uh, sort of corner. And then uh, the reason, <laughs> part of the reason we're getting to this whole waypoint is uh, David Plotz, who uh, was a writer at Slate, became an editor at Slate, and now is off doing some. Th- cultural travel thing called atlas obscura um, hey, don't this atlas obscura i don't know anything about it i don't i'm not i'm not dismissing it i don't know anything about i just know that's what he's doing now i don't have any i don't have an opinion on atlas obscura i just know it has lists that's like the only thing i know about it and that may be i'm surprised inductive. rob is is the atlas obscura apologist after his <laughs> bit last week about about going hard on like things that make you feel smart 
things that make you feel like you've seen the world because that's atlas obscura's entire bit yeah but i think they're doing a better job of in general like when their stuff like crosses onto my radar it's doing a better job of finding stuff that i legitimately have not encountered before and isn't like the american supreme court which you can read a fucking wikipedia article on without the aid of a musical (laughs) and you'll be just fine and probably come away with better understanding if that's true then maybe we would have had different election results in 2016 because people would have known how important the supreme court was so so anyway here's lin-manuel miranda to explain (laughs) they didn't even get it okay i was gonna say i was like is that an episode i didn't listen to more perfect because it wouldn't shock me because that would definitely fit the anyway um so it's 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 just a round table three topics uh sort of thing uh it's it's reasonably popular i the, the reason uh, the Slip Bill Gavis is important to me is because around the time that I started paying attention to politics, like, follows the rise of Obama into presidential politics. And when the home I had for – politics was not part of me, my life growing up. Like, family didn't talk about it. Friends didn't talk about it. Like, that says a lot about my, <laughs> my life growing up in, in addition to just it was not something that – uh, was at the dinner table. It wasn't around friends. And it was something that with the election uh, and rise of Obama, like I just became more interested. I was like, this is a fascinating thing. I was coming into my my own in my 20s, just a, like a larger awareness of things in general. Had my first full-time job working out at 1UP in San Francisco. And so I wanted to learn more about politics. And I found a home on uh, a pre-reset era, NeoGAF, you know, then was, might've been the gaming age forums then. I don't know if the, the switch had happened at that point, but they had a you know, they have a gaming forum, an off-topic forum, and then a, like, uh, n- niches forum. And so it's like the politics, you know, thread was there. And I was just, I don't, I didn't know where to go to find any political discussion. So I started on the forum that I was on every day right. as part Already. of my daily habits sure. and, like, fell into a community there. And I don't know if that's where I picked up on the Slate Political Gap Fest. I was not reading Slate regularly. It was not, like, a part of my daily um sort of media consumption, I think I might have done something as simple as gone into iTunes, searched political, and just, like, downloaded a couple. And, like, this one clicked. And, like, those three became, like, the beginning of me having, like, a language for politics, having it something where it is viewed as both sport and something deeper than just occasionally something you see a headline of or you vote every four years. Um, And I have continued to listen to the Slate Political Gabfest in addition to a whole wide range of, of things as podcasts have become like a, in many ways, my like primary media of, 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 of taking a lot of news and analysis in. Um, and despite the fact that I have grown to despise huge el- and get so angry listening week after week, um, and, and a lot of this is centered around David Plot, so we can get into that to that bit as we transition out of my uh, extremely long intro. But I just wanted to say, like, I just wanted to set the foundation of like it was both it's both an an institutional podcast and also institutional to my own un- foundational understanding of politics as my way in. And so it's been something I've refused to give up because these people have become the same way that people talk to me about like the Bombcast or something like, like these are just like friends I listen to talking about topics each week like. The political gap has like largely became that for me, and have then once you've done it for ten years, mm-hmm. I found it increasingly hard to give up because it's just one of those. It's just this thing I do every week. I listen to what they have to say about three topics from the news that week, um, and this has followed uh, this increasing. It definitely has become far more sharp and aware in the in the last. Basically, post twenty sixteen, I would say, and this has been true for a long time, but I think it's been more sharp in the in the last couple of years, in which David Plotz, uh, Rob wrote the segment title as 
Uh-huh. David Plotz, retire, bitch. Um, because it sounds like, Rob, you fell off and I brought you back in. Austin, it sounds like if you don't listen as, as frequently as, as I, do, I do, it is at least something that is part of what it you've is, listened to regularly as part of part of at least your own hit podcast history. My own podcast history, definitely, definitely. I, I would say when I was in Canada, it became important for me um, because it was a lot harder to pay attention to just what is happening this week. So I spent like four and a half years in Canada uh, from like 2011 through 2015, something like that. Uh, and uh, so that is when I picked up the podcast. I'd, I'd listened to a few episodes here and there prior to that, but that was the period during which – I really fell in. It was like in the lead up to uh, Obama's second uh, campaign and and like what was happening there. Um, And so that became a way for me to just stay grounded and connected to the to the Democratic Party, but also to just like what is happening in Washington. Um, And the thing that's interesting to me is like that was also a period of time during which my politics were going further to the left of them. And so it became it ended up being a podcast that kept me grounded with what the mainstream arguments sounded like and it's a center what, left podcast like it is, I, it we is, should center that up like it is I, it is like and, and david Platts is center center yeah, uh, yeah. emily Bazelon appears that she's slowly being radicalized very um, slowly some, We're bringing her over. very slowly still center left and uh john dickerson calling them both uh, both uh gotta hear both sides is not true he i think at his worst he can be gotta hear both sides at his mm-hmm. best he is uh, like a contextual historian in which he's trying to broaden out, like what is actually happening here. I think he can he can fall into both sides right. of them as because of his as rep- part of his reporting history. Context. Yeah. As, yes, but is it is usually from he's usually approaching that from a good faith perspective as opposed to just like well we got to consider what the Republicans have to say. So it's left leaning, but not it is not 2018 left leaning. It is very much it institutional is, establishment center left S- says they're left, but really is more. It's liberal. Center. It's a liberal yeah, podcast. Yes, yes. By which, it's not progressive. It's liberal. Right. If, if we want to make like the contemporary split in the democratic party in, in the American left wing of thought, it is, it is liberal, which means it has a, a, a fundamental faith in markets. It has a fundamental <laughs> faith in the stat. Rob, <laughs> Rob, that's liquor. <laughs> Well, no, that's not a beer. A beer, Rob. It is one thirty-five p.m. Oh, I not got this one waiting on the flight deck, baby. <laughs> this is unhealthy. It's not. I can't. You're well, not between this and ta- Austin, we have to talk about the Cleveland Browns after this. So know. you know, just turn off the podcast now. Honestly, this is. This is um, so yeah, it has been part of my history. But over the last few years, the okay, so. God, I don't want to just go in. We shouldn't just go in yet. I, I still, want, I still is, want to set up a little bit about this this arc because I think absolutely. it's important. So for me, one of the things that has made me listen less recently, I got I got to a point where I was listening every week, especially in the lead up to 2016's election uh, and in the, the, the fallout after that because it was a sort of meditative salve in which I was spending a, you know an hour a week just deeply immersing myself in the voices of other people who were upset. Right. Yeah. Um, though in the lead up to 2016, especially, it was also it was also the lead up of people who thought they had it in the bag. There was there was this real. I found a tweet from myself from weeks prior where it seemed like uh, prior to the election, where I was kind of characterizing their entire attitude as like, you know, well, we uh, we we won that one. We we knocked that one out of the park. What's next? And 
that was very much the attitude. You know, there was concern about the rise of Trumpism in, in America. Uh, but around that time is when plots specifically became a complete thorn in my side. Not just someone who had takes that I disagreed with, but someone who had a wildly different understanding of what good government looked like uh, and who was dismissive of critique from the left, critique uh, from questions of uh, – from positions often of, of identity and, and, and from the margins. Um and just kind of became a roiling asshole uh, on the show. I don't know him personally, became. you know. But, well, right. So this is the thing: is I there were other moments where I think it just slipped off my like he just he just washed off my back like 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 rain on a water coated beautiful. You sedan, needed which you I needed am. to catch him in one of those. This is my goddamn show moments, right? But unlike back in the heyday of One Up Yours, uh, that moment comes <laughs> from plots like <clears throat> ever like twice an episode. But mm-hmm. some of them are worse than others, and some of them are like, whoa, there's like a weird vibe to the way he interacts with people who are ostensibly his peers. Yeah. And that also changes how he relates to political discussion, right? Like, uh, it honestly, like, the person he reminds me the most of is Bill Maher, if you see yeah. Bill Maher on real time. Yeah. Uh, sort of the, the instinctive, yeah. like the move toward domineering approaches to conversation in a way that can be very bullying if he does not like what he's hearing or if he's getting pushback when he feels he shouldn't. Uh, but like, I think it is worth checking out on this podcast because this is a discourse I have largely lost touch with. This is not, uh, this is not how I tended to follow politics. Uh, my preferred mode, of course, was to go to the Athenaeum once a week and uh, sit in the reading room and catch up on the spectator and the, uh, you know, the new inquiry. But, uh, you know, the going back to something like this, it is interesting to me, especially if you spend a lot of time in the waypoint water cooler reality distortion sphere in some ways where like, yeah, this leftist discourse, this is like commonplace leftist discourse. We got the upgrade from the echo chamber is what you're telling me. We got the, we like the XCOM, we put an extra engineer in there. And so now we got up to the reality distortion chamber. Fuck the echo chamber. Right. But yeah, but Patrick forced us into that, that, that <laughs> cell we keep in the bottom of the Avenger uh, where, they, where they're trying to torture you into becoming a psychic. Uh, because <laughs> this is, this is, this is kind of how, like how I think people end up uh, getting poisoned a little bit by centrism. And it is interesting, even people whose politics and biases they think pulled them to, to pull them left, pull them toward progressivism. Uh, this is a very center left podcast in ways that I find enormously revealing and instructive for why liberalism tends to lack a like concrete political agenda, why it tends to like lack a uh, focus toward political ends. And I think you can see a lot of that and hear a lot of it in the way people interact on uh, the GabFest, particularly in the episode Patrick pulled. Right. So uh, really quickly, I think that's incisive and insightful, Rob. I think that, like that hitting that element of liberalism, which we'll wrap back around in centrism, uh, specifically with liberalism, the idea of like there is not an end. There is only the creation of a stage on which outcomes can be achieved. There's the belief in a sort of a quality of opportunity, not in the quality of outcome. And the idea that once we are all fair actors, the outcome will be beneficial. 
Um, and you do see that on this stage. And I also think specifically to, as we get into this conversation, what's important to look for are the times at which that premise falls apart or not the premise that you've put forward, but that that idea that that is what they are trying to achieve falls apart because of how it misserves certain communities. And also just because eventually someone is like defaults to or decides to pursue a sort of got mine attitude or a well, this is the way it's done or takes over a conversation defaulting to like their uh, their authority, which has been given to them by an unfair stage to begin with. Uh, so that is all I wanted to say before we do get to this episode, which I'm glad Patrick made me listen to, I guess. <laughs> well, Patrick <laughs> had to mourn the passing of the great American. And he did it the only <laughs> way he knew God. how, uh, which was a gab fest. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been uh, an, uh, even a mini art, a, 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 a subplot to this that got me to this point, which is there's an episode some number of weeks back in which uh, the National Review writer – uh, columnist, critic, whatever, uh, David French, um, shitbag, who, like, quoted me in an article once, which was very, very good, and then I switched my name to start trolling him in the article <laughs> because he embedded the tweet, and then it changes the name. It was good. Anyway, they had uh, him on, because they, one of the things that the Gapfest tends to do is they have per- uh, continually participated in this notion of trying to find the reasonable Republican. Um, they have found this, like, uh, both through David French, who uh, and and also uh, <clears throat> Ross Doubt is that how you pronounce his last name? The New York Times opinion columnist. Uh, do uh, you know I've never pronounced right? it that way, but yes. Well, it's do, important that we do reference. That? I've always yeah, that's how I've always said it. But maybe it is Doubt. Like I don't know. I want to say it's Doubt because I want to say that's what they said. I could be wrong, but I want to say they pronounced it Doubt. Uh, anyway, if I'm getting it wrong, but D-O-U-T-H-A-T. Yeah. Look, right? So he, you already uh, know who he is. Yeah, <laughs> you oh. may not know who he is, but you've you've seen people uh, uh, fucking uh, uh, ragging on one of his columns. He is one of the regular, you know, Barry Weiss, uh, uh, like uh, of that triumvirate that is. Uh, although I think he's been at the New York Times opinion page a lot longer. Anyway, yeah, like, he's better than her average, uh, so he because he predates her. <laughs> uh, so they uh, they've had Ross on, they've had David French on, and like, what's interesting is like in the larger context of what it must be like to record a podcast for like 10 plus years for the same groups of people in which you probably fall into habits in which you often don't push back on your, the people that you're speaking with because you fall into a, a habitual, comfortable, conversational tone. Um, in the conversations they've had with like Ross, no one really pushes back on what he has to say despite having some really reprehensible opinions because they all seem to be like buddy, buddy friends in real life. Um, not the case with David French, but what you get is David Plotz, the uh, uh, you know uh, establishmentarian Stan, um, constantly deferring to David French as as someone reasonable. Um, and what happened in that episode was Emily Bazelon being constantly and basically John Dickerson. Usually when things get contentious, John Dickerson just sort of like fades to the background and like kind of lets the two of them work it out. And in that specific David French episode, like Emily just like brought out the knives and was just like not having it. I thought this it was like, is where really the time of the Kavanaugh hearings. Yes, the, the Kavanaugh hearings, and I can't remember where the other topics were. It might have been the whole pe- the whole podcast. Um, and especially you know Emily coming from a legal background, when she is specialized in you know assault and bullying and things like that. Like she was you know clearly coming. Uh, um, from her corner and she just was not having it. it was just interesting because it was one of the few times where you see sort of like the comfortable facade drop and um you see actual combative discourse occurring 
Um, and I found that to actually be like interesting, right? Like I may not want to read David French's columns, but I'm interested in hearing someone like meaningfully take it to someone like that. Um, but it doesn't usually happen between the actual uh, podcast hosts. And, and so this gets us to, uh, I think, last week's episode in which the first topic was sort of like, oh, what do we make of George H.W. Bush and like like more broad reaching? Like how do we, you know, discuss figures uh, like this? And, you know, uh, David Plotz does his, you know, a big memoriam for George H.W. Bush and like always oh, remember him for X, Y, and Z. And there's like this long pause and then, like, Emily Bazelon just, I think she has, like, one line that is maybe a little bit, like, amicable. And then just fucking goes down the laundry list yep. of, like, all of his shitty misdeeds, Willie Horton, AIDS, blah, 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 blah. Like, we don't need to get into that here. Like, there's plenty of articles to do a better job, particularly of that. And you should and look then, them up. If and you, you don't should look them know. up. You don't know. Like, yes. Like, Mr. Reasonable is like, nah, he just exported all of his bullshit. Also, we voted against, like, the Civil Rights Act. There's a lot. There's a lot. So she goes through that laundry list as basically like a giant like fuck you to this idea that like we need to give him 24 hours before we like fully understand like this man's history and like the, the wrongs that he he did upon people um, often for his own political gain. Uh, and Plot's just like the most just guffaws. In, Dude. Wah, wah, wah. The monocle is mean, really, flying across the room. He literally, literally should said... listen to it because I cannot I cannot even in, read the transcript. But uh-huh. like you need to listen to that bit to like you really – like to understand it, but if you, if you have it in front minutes, of you. it's less than ten minutes into this episode. Yeah. But he just goes like, "Man, that was a harsh take, dude. You said one nice thing about the dude, and it was about how he was a kind of a wimp you could like, because that was a thing that she said was that like <laughs> yeah. he did not present this idea of like chest beating masculinity the way we imagine all pre- all male presidents should do. God damn it! Right. No, not just all male presidents. I, I, you know." Even even when Hillary was running, she was putting yeah. on her like best chest thumping rah rah. Yes. Not that she isn't hawkish, also, and is that she is that person. Uh, but but in terms of like the, the masculine but, facing persona, right, right, right. But embedded he, in like sort of presidential politics, he completely so that wasn't my take at all. Like just completely shocked by the idea of bringing up this dude's many 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 misdeeds. Uh, in a way, uh, which then, of course, leads John Dickerson to try to, like, contextualize, in a very Dickersonian moment, to mm-hmm. try to, like, contextualize everything. And, hey, listen, okay, well, is there a way? There's a point at which John Dick. Okay, do you want to do it, Rob? Do you want to bring up his suggestion? Okay. <laughs> solution. Rob, his solution. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, this is, you know, I don't. So, I don't. That's the problem. The, e- the, question, the question, at least. I'll give you the question so that you can okay. give the solution. The question John Dickerson wants to pose is, okay. In our private lives, we know that when you go to a funeral for a family member, you don't bring out the shit. You don't open the closet and say, here are the skeletons, because people are grieving. Everyone has skeletons. You don't bring it out. But George H.W. Bush, like all presidents, is a public figure, and certainly there needs to be some way to hold those people accountable and and, and to do a complete context. I love context, as I'm John Dickerson. Mm Context-filled accounting of their lives, the good and the bad. But I just don't, how could I possibly, how do, is there a time frame? Is there something? Rob, what is his proposed solution? This is where I don't generally fuck with like the whole, you know, liberalism or centrism rots your brain. It's a, it's a brain <laughs> parasite. In general, I'm I, like, you're not going to find me on Twitter saying that shit. But when John Dickerson says, you know, perhaps John McCain could have been done something like this. Maybe he could have pulled it off. Where you appoint somebody you trust and respect to give that more honest 
uh, speech and that full accounting of uh, both the the good and the bad in in your life and, and you as a person. Maybe maybe that's how we could do this. Maybe we could have just given appointed someone you you believe has your best interest at heart. John McCain's going to get up there and go, this man let AIDS victims die because <laughs> he did not want to recognize it was a disease that went but, beyond gay people. But John McCain. That is not all he did. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Point number one. Point number yeah. two. He sure killed a whole bunch of brown people who were civilians, which I, as John McCain, actually think is a good thing. Uh... <laughs> The, it is absurd. It is. It is. Well, it's this cool. long walk around the the very like how they're trying to avoid the fact that Bazelon's basically right. There is, and this is also like the Glenn Greenwald argument as well, which is that there is a very dishonest and frequently grotesque ritual yeah. of uh, whitewashing and public mourning around powerful American figures that completely erases the violence that they either directly caused or or allowed to be perpetrated uh, in their name or the name of the United States. And there is no excuse for the moment one of these people passes to immediately pretend that they are some sainted, beloved, non-controversial American figure who we should all revere uh, because that is just not true for so many people. And also... In politics, these are dangerous lies to believe. These are dangerous lies to promulgate, no matter who just fucking kicked the bucket. And the, the solution Dickerson comes up with is laughable because basically it means, you know, somebody else from the establishment who hasn't right. died, uh, you go to them, your bro, and be like, you're always real with me. Can you be real during my funeral oration? Like that's with America. <laughs> yeah. And like, sure, sure, I can I can do that. That's that's a joke. So, and, and it's and it's in the context of the McCain thing is important because like the way they bring that up is like, oh, the, the path forward is like, oh, well, just because John McCain took like a pot shot at Trump at the end by not inviting him to the funeral, and then his daughter, Megan McCain, like using a speech in which she is repudiating uh Trump like through eulogizing her father, like that that whitewashes all of John McCain's shit in the pro like right. that's not that's right. not that's not that's not an actually solve it go and anywhere towards solving so it. So th there is a thing here that Dickerson says that I think is right. Like Dickerson's lead up is like you can walk the garden path with him until where it gets until it, it gets to this point, which is I think there's a point at which where he's saying the problem with doing this is that it whitewashes the presidency. It whitewashes uh, positions of power in, in public service in such a way that it encourages us to think about them in a non-problematic sense, to, to, to canonize them. And he is right about that. Like when you do this, it, um, it prevents us from holding accountable people and, and for, uh, from understanding these roles as, as ones in which the people who get elected to them are going to do things that we despise. Uh, and needing to like struggle with that and wrestle with that inside of a democracy is key to understanding how those rules function and how to change things so that when right from now on presidents who get elected are going to be ordering drone strikes until someone like runs on that promise and then like you know sunsets that program it is going to continue happening and as long as we don't if obama died tomorrow i would be the first one saying that motherfucker killed a lot of people with drones that motherfucker, uh, you know, uh, 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 I almost said evicted, deported more people than his predecessor who was famous for hating immigrants, right, uh, and, and running on those campaign promises. The, the fact that we 
we need to have those conversations so that we can push politics in a better direction. To not have those conversations and to and to you know put up these figures as saints is to limit our political imaginations in such a way that we've already seeded the conversation, that we've already given over uh, to to the world like a vision of America that is less lesser than we'd ever want it to be in our hearts. And like I just there's no reason to do that. Like when a president dies. Just like any other political figure in the world, we have a responsibility to think through what they did and to fail to do. I know we said we didn't want to do the George H.W. Bush episode here, but here we are like to fail to do that. The fact that we don't do that proves the thing I was saying before, which is that when liberals, which I mean both in terms of the liberal center left wing of the center wing of the Democratic Party and also neoliberals who are, you know, right, center right. Uh, far right ends up doing a whole other situation right now. We talk about, you know, kind of anti-globalism, blah, 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 which we can get into another day. But this idea of the market, the free market, the global market, the marketplace of ideas, not just the market where, where things are bought and sold, but where ideas are, are you know, come into conflict with each other, where ideas are, are challenged and where, oh, if you have the, the conflict of, of, of smart people, just debate me, bro. That liberal, that liberal core idea is thrown away. All day they'll say, if the good ideas will win out. Motherfucker, then let me say how bad this dude was, and you can say how good he was, and we'll see who wins the day. Because I know who George H.W. Bush killed. It was a lot of people. It was a lot of people. And if you can't confront that, then your entire premise, the idea that good ideas win the day, is full of shit, and you know it's full of shit. Well, and that, I think points to like who are these positions taken for what what exactly. is it serv- serving and i think this is where like that episode i believe ends with a shout out to the weekly standard uh to the <laughs> homies over at the weekly standard hope y'all yep. land on your feet hire these good good people yep. uh this this conservative respectable conservative propaganda outlet is about to shudder because it's no longer serving a useful serving as a useful front for the fucking Mercer class billionaires who have discovered that just straight up white nationalism just plays way better and will actually win elections. Yep. Uh, so that's why the Weekly Standard is getting flushed down the fucking toilet. Uh, but it ends with them sort of giving a shout out to the Weekly Standard because fundamentally these are, and again, this is more terminology I tend to like try to resist, like the village. The, the the idea that like DC and yeah. the Northeast like political class tend to be deeply parochial and have the dynamics of a small town where everybody fundamentally is part of the same community shares a lot more common interests and values uh, than is encompassed in their politics and so when push comes to shove like when there's a death of a political figure. It is a death in this family. It is a death in this small community. Yep. And this class of people who ostensibly position themselves as experts on American politics, as people who will tell you what is actually happening in the halls of power and uh, who is affected, when something like real happens uh, to someone in the political classes, particularly like a powerful figure like an ex-president, immediately... People like the hosts of the Gabfest turn into respectable mourners. They turn into rhetorical pallbearers. Uh-huh. And they completely abandon uh, any pretense of objectivity or like cool analysis of the facts. 
and immediately join in the rituals if they're mourners at a funeral. And that should also, and I think that is that is illuminating because I don't think it is as selective as we don't do this when, we don't do this at a funeral. Right. I think they're pulling those punches all the time. I think Plots, like, engineers yep. these discussions a lot to pull those punches and doesn't press on this stuff. Like, they, one of the things that they really embrace, they fucking love, is, like, technocratic obscure yes. obscuritist language legal legalese the french episode is uh useful to look at for this because Bazelon's pushing back on it right and left but basically there this is in the at the height of the disgusting uh hearings around uh, brett kavanaugh and uh dr blazy ford and david french there is arguing that we should apply the standards of a criminal proceeding to deter to the Kavanaugh hearings. And he is again and again like throwing out all this language that is familiar from courts of law as to what burdens of proof are, uh, you know, what what the standards of evidence are. And what Plotz never points out is that the Senate hearing, the confirmation hearing, is not a criminal proceeding. Like we don't hold we do not hold standards of evidence to any other dis like if I hear yep. that you're talking shit behind my back. Or you find out that, like, you know, you come home and your kid has, like, completely fucking demolished the living room. You don't immediately say, but, you know, I couldn't prove beyond a yeah. reasonable doubt that this <laughs> happened. Uh, you know, obviously, I don't think I could convince a jury of my peers that this is indeed the case. I don't think I meet that burden of proof. Therefore, I am obligated to do nothing. I cannot react to what is right. evident to everybody in the room. I'm just going to play dumb. That's the game French plays is I don't want like what French what French ultimately wants is to put a conservative on the Supreme Court. And his mode of doing that is to throw up this smokescreen of, well, really, like, is this really knowable in a court of law? Is this is this a fact you can establish? I just I have I, you know, I just don't think so. I, I'm you know, when I work in a prosecutor's office, this is never this is never something that would that would pass muster. And Plotz lets it pass because right. fundamentally, Plotz likes that logic. Plotz loves smoke screens, right? Like yes. this is Plotz, the defender of the swamp, uh, all swamps. Please, more backroom deals. Please, more more old boys clubs, more secret handshakes and and rooms filled with cigar smoke. You know, I I, there I think are, he's like constantly he's like regularly argued about like removing like these the establishment of senators from the people because maybe yes. they just don't understand. A hundred percent. He's one of those. He, he's someone. Go, who, I mean, even in that same discussion with the second topic yes. they have talking about wasps is like like. And oh, we didn't even so, get there. Go no, ahead, set and, that up, well, please. Well, they have, they have this, the, the segment based on Ross, like Ross Doubt yeah, <laughs> editorial sure. in the New York Times. Ross Doubt, shitty cover band. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I'll profess to not having a like that was the first time I'd really heard the term wasp. Like I was not familiar with this as like a. Oh wow! Like, okay. Uh, White so Anglo-Saxon Protestant is what it yeah, is. Not, yeah, yeah, like a, a certain establishment background in which, uh, like, most of the elites come from. Like, I mean, I, under, I understood that as, like, a general concept, yeah. not, like, as a terminology. So anyway, like, they – Ross, like, you know, is doing a, a piece uh, sort of eulogizing, like, the, the death of this, you know. Um, George and, W. George H. W. Bush, the late gra great – the last great WASP president is the kind right. of pitch of that piece from Ross – uh, Rossed out and and is making the case that like 
Ross is making the case that, like, well, why shouldn't there be uh, an almost an elite ordained class that elite... just like, <laughs> yeah, they yeah. have the best schools. They go to the best schools. They have the best. Their families are together still, certainly. Uh, it's like those, like, boom, boom, boom. All those hits keep coming. Like, oh, if they are the most, if they are the best school, if they have the connections already, then let them govern us. Noblesse oblige. Like, hey, ah, yes. Just FYI. Uh, yeah. David Plotz went to an elite wasp <laughs> private school. Don't like just throw that out there. Like it's not a big a deal or anything, American. but like, he went clear. there. But yes, yes, yes. Um, like he knew those kids. He went to school with them uh, in an elite, uh, you know, wasp uh, private school. Um, huh? Again, like just an offhand fact, little little fact. That don't mean anything by it. Just uh, you know, I, I went to an elite <laughs> private school though. Uh, just got to make sure you know. Um, and yeah, uh, and in that conversation, uh, you know, he sets up like. I mean, his premise is basically like maybe like. It is better if we are ruled by like a preordained elite class. Maybe the rest of society doesn't actually know how to do that. And like Emily like left aghast again, sort of like respond responds with like the fuck you talking about, <laughs> man? Like are you like saying like marginalized people and folks from different like just other people shouldn't have a say in how the fuck we are all governed. And it's one of the few times where he's he's directly even in the George W. Bush exchange, like H. W. Bush exchange, like he's not directly needled as much as Emily is like just bringing up her own response. Yeah. Like Emily responds and basically like reveal like takes the mask off of his own argument um, using the, the the flowery language that he often hides behind and like rev- like reveals a very dark like underbelly to like Plotz's rhetoric that has always been there, but has never been like truly unmasked to the degree that like I found in that exchange where he like finds himself on his heels and like it, it was a really revealing exchange, I thought. So the thing that there, there's there's so much there that is worth getting into. This idea, this this nostalgia for the reign of the Northeastern Wasp. And Romney is from that class, by the way. Like his, yeah. his family roots go back to sh- Michigan. What are you but, talking about? That there hasn't been like yeah. Sorry, continue. Right. Yes, but I think fired up right now, uh, Rob. Yeah, there was this. There is this like retroactive nostalgia for the rule of like well, like predominantly wealthy northeastern families, uh, particularly like you know Mayflower type crowds. Uh, that you could that you could identify that they would be in all the higher uh, like you would find them not only in high elected office uh, consistently generation across generation but you would also find them near the top of any meaningful government um, like government institutional hierarchy uh, this is you know how you how you end up with uh, the Dulleses, uh you know fo- mm-hmm. folks like that and I understand. I understand maybe the appeal of having nostalgia for that if you don't think about it for a half second. Like, if, if the idea of, if politics right now frightens you and having such a boorish creep like Trump and all his hangers-on scares you, I can see why you'd be nostalgic for the rule of people who is generally as a class uh, tended to at least sound a little bit more restrained, sound a little bit more po- polished, uh, look a little more and talk a little more like people you find. Uh, respectability as... politics. Like, that's yeah. what Plotz wants through and through. He's like, yeah. oh, just, you know, like, be, you know, like, fuck black people, but, like, just don't say that out loud. Mm-hmm. But the, the Run the other... Willie Horton ad, but you, as long as you're the one who didn't technically yeah. approve I, the Willie Horton. I, a political consultant, a pact did that. I like, was looking that, not here. me. Yeah, exactly. Well, and... 
the the other part of this is then then though they turn around and man just such a life of service all this like admiration for just the pure public ah, service yeah. of a character like bush and you heard this applied to mccain a lot and mccain's uh, father was famously uh, an admiral uh, in, in in world war ii um and the thing i often find myself thinking about is even the occupying those positions of service getting appointments to a lot of military academies often does involve being a little bit connected uh, certainly doesn't help. Certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, having a having a career like being highly placed in the civil service for years and years that predominant those predominantly were posts occupied by well connected elites. And I thought a lot about there's, there's a movie I didn't remember particularly liking when it came out, but it's one of those things that has stuck with me uh, for ages. It's De Niro's uh, The Good Shepherd, uh, which is about uh, oh, what is it? James Angleton at the CIA, uh, who was sort of the, the head of counterintelligence for, for years and years and uh, is sort of this, this infamous figure. But there's, there's this scene where Angleton, the, the, the CIA operative who's a Skull and Bones member, definitely one of those Northeastern wasps, is talking to Joe Pesci, uh, trying to arrange some deal about Cuba. And Joe Pesci's a mobster. And Joe Pesci points out to him, you know, Irish have their homeland, you know, uh, Italians have have the church. Um, and he turns to him and he's like, what, what, what do your people have? What, what, what connects you? And the Angleton character responds, we have the United States of America and the rest of you are just visiting. And Damn. that is a line Damn. that has sort of haunted me ever since because I think when we talk about the service that folks like that tended to render the country, yeah, it's a proprietary service. It is... This is the family business, and you work in the family business, and maybe you stay, maybe you start on the ground floor, but you're gonna move up, and you're gonna be running the show someday. And the culmination of that was George W. Bush, a man who never had any real qualifications, never showed any capacity for uh, government or understanding of of complicated issues. But by God, he was a Bush. By God, he was one of them. And that is what that system gets you in the end. And Plotz looks at that and is reverent for it. Mm-hmm. Because, well, say what you will, at least they served. At least in the midst of all the awful things they did, all their egregious fuck-ups, all the people who died along the way to forward their careers and to make them look tough or service their agenda, at least they looked like they gave a damn about the country. And wasn't that a fine thing? It is. It is. You know, I know we have to move on to another topic. The Cleveland Browns, they're a whole different type of American (laughs) tragedy. Um, But for me, one of the last things I I really wanted to to get to here. um, The I'm just trying to get my thoughts together. There's actually a whole other clip we have to at least talk about because Rob linked us to, to another thing. In fact, yeah, I wish we had said it earlier to set up like the like bizarre cruelty of, of David and, like, Plotz. <laughs> of, of David Plotz. Yeah. Um, you know, let's maybe we'll just end with that quote. <laughs> I guess so. Like, I've I've lo- I've been so I'm all over the place right now. I'm trying to bring it back. I had a very particular point that I wanted to make that I've now lost. Do you want me to give you a second? I'll bring up something else and maybe it'll come back. Yeah, you bring up something else and maybe it'll come back. Um, I, I guess one of my last thoughts is just I, I both continue to listen to this podcast because it's just something I've always done. I, I find it, it to be a hard habit to break. But I also have 
like both justified that and found a new interest in the podcast. But whereas it used to be my entry into politics, my understanding of a political language, and uh, uh, and I, I will always appreciate what it did for me there um, as being an on ramp to to other things. But I now find it interesting to listen to because of the situation, because of the world we now live in, in that it being an establishment center left podcast that is struggling with like a wanting to be a voice for like the left when it increasingly finds itself out of step with where the left is going. And I think it's worthwhile, even if it's not, I don't consider it to be a a both sidesism to be curious to be said, where, what is the conversation like over there? What are those people talking about? I don't want, I don't, it's not because I value, it's not part of my own values of like where my politics are going, but there is worth, and maybe this is part of just me being reported, like just being curious, but like, I'm curious, like, how are they talking yeah. about Ocasio-Cortez? How are they talking about Medicare for all? Both because it, it is informative for how the left is going to push that agenda, how the, like, like, and so I just find it interesting to listen to now because it is a particular type of person in a particular moment yeah. in which it is wildly out of step. And yet there are so many people that are from that, that ignoring like how they are thinking and framing things is at our own peril for making those accomplishments. And so that's what I listen to week for week is like when I see where the left is going, I'm curious, like this is like a marker of like, well, where is that conversation in different parts? And so it's a different reason for listening. I am not getting any real like occasionally stuff from Bazelon, occasionally stuff from Dickerson. I often find actually Dickerson is way more interesting in his his whistle stop podcast in which he is used at his best, where he is like guiding you through history. Um, I'm certainly ideology plays a part in like what parts of history you do and don't talk about, but I, I think he generally does a pretty good job about topics that I I don't know very much about um, in generations prior. Um, but yeah, that is that is where I stand. Like the if the, if the if the this bring up this topic was about like where I stand on this podcast, this is where I now land. Is like it used to be something I got a lot rhetorically and intellectually out of. I now find it just to be like an interesting conversational marker at a at a moment where everything is changing. It has been so useful to me in the last few years to have the the plots really like uh, the whole show, but specifically plots yeah. because he and I agree at a fundamental level about something, which is the necessity for government right now, at least one day, you know, wave my red and black flags and it will all come crumbling <laughs> down and the state will dissolve and the people will rise, etc. But for now, I, I, I grew up, I am a biracial child. My dad is black. My mom is white. Uh, my mom was was kicked out of her her family home for marrying my father. Um, my parents divorced, and my mom had brain surgery when I was seven. She had a thing called an uh, arteriovenous malformation, which is like it's I, I think of it as a tumor. It's a collection of of arteries and veins in her brain, and they put a drill in her skull to remove it, and uh, it, it left her with the inability to see parts of her vision, uh, a, a, a susceptibility to seizures. Uh, in a general state of fatigue for decades. Uh, she's still Jeez. recovering from it in some ways. And so as a kid, and she was a single mom at this time, right? She was she was a single Oof. parent. Um, we, there, there, to some degree, we, we did, you know, the family helped. My, we moved back to Pennsylvania to, to her her mother's place. I lived with my grandmother for a while. Uh, we had a, uh, we were living in an apartment at the time and, the, and our landlord, fuck landlords, but our landlord at the time let her keep the apartment rent-free for seven months. 
um, and just left our stuff there. So, like, yeah, to some degree, you can rely on the kindness of people in your life. I think that compassion and empathy are an important thing that we should develop as individuals. But what we needed was disability, was Medicaid and Medicare. What we needed were, uh, you know, even before that, while my parents were splitting, we relied on institutions like women's shelters to house us when we did not have places to go. Um, we, we needed child support from my father. Like, these are things that institutions, the government, has a role to play to help those on the margins. A social safety net is a thing that you need a government to provide right now before the state dissolves and the people rise up. And so, in this moment, like David Plotz, I believe in the government. The right absolutely does not believe in the government, except for when it can draw, you know, uh, new pathways to profit for, for corporations who have filled their pockets. I believe in government. I just believe in a different government than David Plotz, who wants one where people are having backroom deals, where they're producing a marketplace of both ideas and, and uh, uh, commerce, uh, one where the world will guide it, it, the, the, the government's job is to set a stage for, for the world to function on. I want a, 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 a government that cares for people who are in uh, positions of, of economic and personal and health weakness, uh, a government that does not only allow people to succeed in life, but in, encourages and enables them. I want a world in which a government who, who is not driven by profit motive can do things that aren't profitable but are good with a capital G, good, provide education, provide health care, provide the ability for people to connect to other people in the world so they can understand what the world is. And, like, David Plotz, like, basically just wants a, a group of people who can, I don't know, pass the occasional bill to reduce your taxes or to make it so that, like, there are better books in your school, which, like, okay, sure. It's 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 the definition of like incrementalism. Absolutely, which it gets margin yes. it gets marginally better, but mostly on the surface, and is nowhere, nothing close to radical change or radical rethinking of the status Plots quo. Is the, because he's the best argument against reformism, right? He's the best yes. argument against incrementalism. He's the best argument against we can fix this bit by bit, part by part. Because sometimes the rest of the thing falls apart more quickly than you can repair the past. Well, and he and, will, I, and I guess that. Oh, go ahead. And, well, and he will always invite a saboteur into the conversation. He will yeah. always be like, there's always a place at the table for a sensible, responsible conservative <laughs> in the mold of George W. Bush. And yes, to pull that off, I need to have consistent and progressive amnesia about the arc of political history and the evolution of the Republican Party. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm going to do that. And so on any given day, on any given issue, history starts now. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find whichever Republican has not outed themselves uh, as a virulent racist yet. Uh, so Kevin D. Williamson out, uh, David French in, I guess. Um, and we're going to pretend like those folks also are going to speak in good faith and are going to have the best interests of those same groups at heart. They want to achieve good ends. They just disagree about how. Yeah, and I, and I guess like my last point would be like after – what you just said, Austin, is that I think maybe what I've grown to realize over the course of this conversation and like rethinking the podcast is that I like was guilty and did believe in the notion of like incrementalism and things can get better. And like, that's like the summation of the Obama presidency and why I started like getting into paying attention to more politics. And then something like 2016 happens and it turns out, oh fuck, we wasted eight years right. of power. We will never have 60 votes in the Senate ever again. 
uh, we fucked up. Yeah. And if there is a moment for change, it is not expanding healthcare at the margins. It is like revolutionizing how we conceive of servicing society and the people. And like, that's the, my own change. And like, that's like the change you don't see in that podcast. And like, I think that maybe more specifically illustrates my own personal like shift on what that podcast is and represents to me. Yep. All right. We're going to take a little break and then we'll be back with the other half of waypoints in a moment. Okay, so the moment I knew I needed to eject from the Gab Fest uh, came back in like 2008, summer 2008. Right as I got on board. Yeah, yeah a uh, decade yeah. ago. Look, mid-2000s Patrick sounds like he sucked, not going to lie. That dude sounds shitty. Uh, but anyway, so mid-2000s, uh, just as Patrick is discovering politics are a thing, uh, David Plotz is... They're with Emily Beslan, and they're doing their uh, sort of their waypoints, their their cocktail chatter at the at the end of the podcast, where they bring up stuff they're interested in. And they've been hoisted on their. We're doing this partially because (laughs) there was a line from cocktail chatter, slate political. Oh, hundred percent to match three to us. Then to waypoints, by the way. To waypoints, because that was the other. uh, Hoisted. I'm sorry. And the Idle Weekend, because and I that was Chris Remo's idea. He was like, right. I love cocktail chatter. We should just do yeah. a show of that. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, point is. So, and I remember this article. In 2008, the New York Times runs this article about people trying to hack together the greatest chocolate chip cookie recipe in the world. And it's just a trivial little, like, food and dining, uh, you know, feature about... All these, like, you know, patissiers and chefs working together trying to figure out, like, how can we just make the, like, most kick-ass chocolate cookie in the history of humanity? And they go to all these iterations. It's a fun little article. Bazelon brings it up, and she's kind of put off by just the amount of, she's like, the hedonism of it all. Like, the the effort to the effort being put in to improve and perfect something that fundamentally is just good and simple. Uh, why are we basically like turning this into a science experiment to improve something that's already great? Cookies are already great, uh, the Gab Fest. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but David Plotz just can't handle it. He is furious that this article exists, that like people are thinking about this. And he says at the end of this pod, at the end of this episode, the amount of intellectual energy that is devoted to food or food science is staggering. It's a huge intellectual indulgence. 
And these people who would be better spent being engineers, building better telemetry for rockets or something, are instead spending all this time perfecting the way to do sous vide pork belly. I find it slightly offensive the amount of intellectual energy that goes into food these days. They think and history I, can I be solved, done. Rob. They think that everything can be solved. There, and, is, there is a perfect chocolate chip cookie that has already been made. Culture shouldn't just keep happening. <laughs> yeah, just give up. Like, you you got a perfectly good chocolate chip cookie. Stop thinking about trying to wait, make it better. Who cares? And the other the other thing that I just find revealing, the uh, and these people who would be better spent being engineers. Uh-huh. Yes, obviously his, he's misspeaking. But the slip there, I just find riveting because this whole idea of, look, if you're a bright, capable person, you owe it to our society to do some sort of technical task that will advance humanity. Now, David Plotz doesn't know what that task could be. Rockets need telemetry, right? Sure, that seems, like, that seems like a thing. David Plotz has definitely devoted his considerable intellectual energy toward <laughs> contemplating how people should spend their brain, their brain cells. Rockets, uh, like what you shoot at people or escape from a, a, a post-climate disaster world in, you know? Yeah. Rockets. But just the entire thing <laughs> of like people trying to live their lives and make an indulgence just a little bit like better and more fun yeah. Was offensive to plots. Like he, he was basically like, "Hey, Kenji Lopez, Alt, get back, <laughs> get, get back in the science minds, you bastard." God, it's amazing. <laughs> the All state right. requires your talents, comrade. <laughs> God. All right. What What are we doing next? What are we? Speaking of wasted potential and talent. <laughs> What are you talking about? This I got a path to the wild card. They do. This is so they fucking do. good. They this do. is so good. Okay. Uh, so my card. waypoint this week. Me too. Uh, is this latest season of HBO's Hard Knocks, which is at this point kind of a long running uh, documentary yeah. football series that every year they follow through training camp. Uh, documentary is, uh, let's put it in quotes. It is approved by the NFL. So our insight is slightly uh, muted, but it is more than you, you get otherwise in terms of like how an NFL organization actually works. Yeah. Um, and so this year's edition was the 2018 Cleveland Browns. And I don't know what it was like to watch this week to week, but I'm coming into it now from what we know now. And it's each, a lot more interesting now than it was at the time. I'll say that. Yeah. There is a way in which these shows can like a, seem a bit like, NFL propaganda, you know, here's how this team and all these experts are getting better and always improving. Here's what it's like to be on a here's what it's like to be on a hard-hitting practice squad in the NFL. This season, they're following the Browns, and the important thing to know about the Browns is last year they won no games. We talked about this a little bit on earlier waypoints yeah. about how this is a legendarily tormented fan base. And they won a single game the year before? Yeah. Right? Yeah. They they and importantly, during these these legendarily bad runs, which, I mean, is for more than a decade, but, like, specifically in the last th- couple of years, it's been really, really bad. Like, going 0-16 is, like, statistically difficult. Yeah, they went like- it's actually hard to be that bad in, an, in a league that has tried to engineer parity across uh, teams. It was 650 um, and- <laughs> days without a win or something. It's, like, mostly yeah, almost and- two years. 
it's like the last year they actually wanted wanted them to lose because there were corporations who were prepared to sponsor an 0 and 16 parade and then they won a game at the end of the year and they I think they still got the parade but it was not nearly as fun as an 0 and 16 parade. God. So the other thing is these really like these catastrophically bad seasons again they've had a decade of of being a bad team. But these catastrophically bad seasons happened under this head coach, Hugh Jackson. And uh, so where this picks up is actually Hugh Jackson sort of throwing this little public event to put the, put the past behind. It's a fresh start for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, they're going to change the culture in Cleveland. They're going to become a good football team this year. And there's cause for optimism. Uh, one is that they brought in one of the best receivers in the NFL, Jarvis Landry. Uh, and it's not so important that you know, like, you, that you'd be super into football. You can enjoy this without being super into football because it's just a fascinating portrait of people in an organization mm-hmm. in difficult times. Those characters. Jarvis Landry is a legit superstar. Bless him. Bless him. Bless him. Bless him. You got to bless him. Uh, that's, that's one of his ticks is <laughs> he's out there uh, because he views his gifts as coming, coming from the Lord. Every time he fucking burns down a defensive back... <laughs> Uh, he has blessed him. He has blessed him uh, w- with his gifts, uh, which is a, a pretty awesome, <laughs> pretty awesome thing to An say. An interesting way of looking at it, it's like God smited this defensive bless back, him. but Jarvis Landry bless him. Uh, but Jarvis Landry is like a legit superstar. He's showing up to this to the, to this team. They've also just drafted, and this is where the episode begins. They have just drafted uh, this young quarterback, Baker Mayfield, who everyone is expecting great things from could be maybe one of those like generational quarterbacks. That's kind of the hope that the Browns have. But on the other hand, this is a coaching staff that has been sort of historically unsuccessful. And there is a kind of lingering whiff of failure and doubt around the Browns. And the thing to know at this point is that this story doesn't have a happy ending. This turnaround doesn't really come off. Uh, not for all the characters in the story. Hugh Jackson, a lot of those coaches you meet, they will be fired at the midway point of the season. But if you're watching this documentary today, it is watching these guys put in motion the final catastrophe that will cost them their jobs and cause a final like reckoning in Cleveland. And I think that makes this documentary just fascinating because like mid-season moves like that are kind of rare you don't have that many guys getting fu- this year's been an outlier you're getting a lot of guys fired mid-season in the nfl but in general they let you play out the season they, they you know it's like you put the company line out there and you pretend things are going to be fine cleveland did not do that they imploded which we've talked about uh privately i think uh in terms of there's like a, a great metaphor at play here uh, when when this happens in real life, or it's a, it's one that I've I've begun deploying since you used it regarding a different situation, which is firing your head coach in the middle of an NFL season is sort of like giving you cover to be bad for the rest of the year. It's like oh well, you know, we knew the rest of this year was going to be a building year. We fired the coach. Every you know, it, sure it's only halfway over, but we're just going to kick it kick it down the road now. Uh, next year is the real year that we have to care about, and so it was. Which is normally what happens. Normally you 
fire the coach, everything goes bad from there because bringing in a new coach and building a new system, it's like it's like getting rid of a boss and bringing in a new boss who wants to run things their way. And like all of a sudden, like, OK, well, they have to learn everything that's here. They have to build relationships. They have to start things from the ground up. Whatever year you hire a new boss, it's going to be, you know, one full time unit away at least until they can really start making changes. But that doesn't seem to have what happened here was that the team just got better and you can it, it is so hard to go back and watch this first episode in some ways which is what i watched because one hugh jackson is are you too familiar with the freight with the term herb it's like a it's like a black culture hip-hop culture thing like oh that motherfucker's a herb uh mm-hmm. it's just like corny it's just like like a nerd like a dork <laughs> just like he a herb and <laughs> hugh jackson's a herb like no there is no presence and I, I think presence is a broad no. term. I want to be clear. I mm-hmm. don't mean chest-thumping masculinity here. I, I, I don't mean, like, he's quiet. Because there is a, there's a sense of quiet presence that you get from some NFL coaches where they don't need to be yelling and screaming. They don't need – and that comes through constantly. But also, to be clear, this first episode is also – comes on a week where his mother dies, uh, which is two weeks after his brother dies. It's brutal. Uh, it's brutal, and there's a sequence early on where he's doing, like, the morning meeting with his other coaches, the other – and he's just like, by the way, oh my uh, God. just so you guys know, my mom died last night. Um, uh, and their heads uh, all whip around. They whip around, but then they look back forward at the footage that they're all looking at, and there's this moment where you can tell that he's – he. He just wants like a hug. He just wants any response. And none, the one of them, one of them goes like, "Yeah, that's tough." Uh, like, yeah, yeah, it's real tough. And he goes, "I lost my brother and my mother within two weeks of each other. It's crazy, man." Anyway, so this is an inside zone, and it's just like, oh. So one of the things that I think is particularly like, I'm watching this with my partner, and yeah. I think one of the things she and I have both worked on for ourselves over the years uh, is just trying to get better at like different modes of empathy and identifying with people and responding yeah. to the energy they're putting out, the, the, the needs they have, uh, because there's not, there, there's no one given way to interact with people that shows empathy and expresses support. Like you just have to get, you have to sound that out, but it requires like, you should always be trying, like it always, I, I generally have the view that like, I'm always trying to improve, if not my emotional intelligence, at least my ability to sense what people are putting out. And, sure. like, the way they want that responded to, uh, what will be welcome in that moment. Football's an incredibly psychological game. You can't play, like, I don't know that anybody can play a game of football and be completely, like, you know, an Iceman-type figure. I just, I don't know that you can you can play it without heart. Like, it is such a grueling game. Uh, and it's a game that, like, is really good at sowing a lot of self-doubt. It, it can blow your confidence apart. That's something you're going to see affecting a lot of these players as training camp goes on when you start to feel like maybe i don't got it maybe i don't got it this year maybe it's getting away from me especially like the uh like the undrafted free agents and like folks are coming in just to get a roster spot and like hard knocks is my favorite arcs on any of the seasons and this this one in particular has some good ones um where you have those folks who are coming in off the street they weren't highly big high draft picks where like they could be a bust but they're still going to be around for four five six years um these dudes who are just like you know, maybe they played in college, maybe they're off the street and they're just trying to get a spot and like they'll follow them as they almost inevitably get cut yeah. because they almost rarely make the roster. There's a but, moment about 40. I want, you know, okay, so one, this episode is just on an HBO channel. Well, like, just, just re- real up. quick, let me just finish yeah, my please. point that I was, that I was going yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I think one of the things that comes through in the show is 
this is a game that so many of these guys, these coaches, these players need empathy, emotional support. They yes. need emotional intelligence around them. But culturally, just like just everything that surrounds football, but particularly this organization, this organization is particularly bad at this. Um, they are just an environment where that stuff is lacking. And so moments of outreach are missed. And oh. then people try to back it up and circle back and provide the empathy that they missed earlier. And that also feels forced. And like the excruci excruciating thing about this show, but that makes it like, again, just utterly captivating to watch is all these moments where you can see a world where these things turned out differently, mm -hmm. where the right thing is said, where people are given what they need to succeed at a given moment. And this group of people at the Browns almost unerringly miss that fucking cue. And the result is almost always some sort of lingering damage. You know, there are so many times in the show where someone says like, what's it all about? It's all about family. It's all about family. We're a family here. And like, are you? Because no one got up and hugged that man when he said he lost two family members in two weeks. Like, but then he's just having his morning later I on know. in the show. And the general manager of the team, plus another coach, just or another exec, they walk in, just uninvited, just unannounced. They walk yeah. in and they're like, let's hug it out. Just let it out. Just, just let it out. You gotta you, let it out. Because you know your mom died, right? Your mom's dead. Just let it out. You should probably cry now. And and you know oh, that like so if you don't hard. get over this, you know that I'm the new GM, and that if you don't have a winning season, like you're gonna get fired. So get it out of your system. I mean, that's like the that's that's like the that's always like the the like what must in some ways like lead to this lack of empathy, right? Like is the actual way these teams are structured, the power dynamics that exist between like these people. Like so, yeah, when Jack Dorsey, the the GM, comes in and like yeah wants to hug it out with Hugh Jackson, it's like well. I mean, if you've been following, like, the narratives of football, like, you know that Hugh is, like, a dead man walking. Like, there's almost no way that he comes out of here with a job unless he makes it to the playoffs. And so, like, why would this GM want to even build an empathetic relationship with a man that he's going to inevitably fire, at, whether at the end of the season or midway this season? And so, it's just, it's fucking weird. There are moments in the show that are, uh, that, you know, you talk about, like, on one hand, you have these people who are going through something. Like, football training camp is incredibly hard. Like, it is it is just grueling work day after day and hoping that it will be enough down the road. And even in that first episode, there are signs where, like, a lot of the other coaches are like, this isn't going to do it. Like, people aren't giving their all. There's a There are moments where people are just, like, on the sidelines not practicing in fisherman hats, just, like, chatting, barely listening to what's going on. There's this really stirring moment where where uh, Jarvis Jarvis Landry oh, gets up during a, a kind of a receivers-only uh, coaching segment, uh, kind of an off, like an offensive group uh, uh, kind of tape-watching thing. And he's like, yeah, I got something to say. Like, if you're going to fucking be at practice, be at practice. Fucking practice. But and and the the number one thing that he says the thing that's like the thing that he keeps coming back to is like the the lackadaisical nature the fact that no one's giving their all the fact that people have already bought in that they're the Browns that they're gonna lose they don't have to practice is contagious this feeling of being a failure is contagious and like Lord do I know what that is like absolutely do I know that feeling of like well. We're probably going to come up, you know, win a three or four games this season no matter what. Okay, well, you know, this article's probably only going to do five, six, seven thousand hits. Yeah. You know. Uh. Well, 
and there's stroll this, in like, a little later, leave a little earlier. And where where Jarvis comes in, uh, there's this moment. It's like him realizing what he's gotten himself into, where he's like, I don't know what the fuck has been going on. Uh, I don't know why things are this way, but it needs to stop. Like every right. time you're dogging it at practice, that means the guys who are showing up have to work harder, and they're going to get hurt. Yep. Like they're gonna they're gonna have to more is gonna be asked of them. They're gonna get fucking hurt, and once one of them goes down, the others carry even more weight. So get out there and practice. But like, there's things in this show that like. There's a moment, it's hilarious, but like there's two players standing on the sideline yeah. and they're doing that I'm not seeing you thing to their coach, Hugh Jackson. One of them to is their like head sort coach. of shading his eyes so he can't see his head coach staring at him. And they're mic'd up. So you hear one of them say like, he's looking at me right now, isn't he? The guy's like, yeah, dog. He's like, uh, he's like, he's locked on, baby. He's like, I'm just not, I'm not going to look at him. I'm not going to look at him. It's so good, but it's so childish. And like, how is this happening? The tragedy, does this first episode the tragedy is then Hugh Jackson looks over at them he's like are you guys listening what play did he just call what did what did he say and they're like uh like a nickel package over alpha and he's like yeah you should listen I'm like oh Hugh you're a disaster like I know it's a hard week and I'm not I'm not saying he should be doing a better job I mean that's the thing like I'm not saying like I'm shocked he's there I would not be there that week and yet, also, there's also a meeting later where Hugh tries. He has like the head coach meeting. He's like the coach meeting with oh, this, 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 you, this, 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 this. Yes, you do describe it, Pat. <laughs> you, he has all the coaches there. There's he has a, all the coaches there. All the all and like, there's like the setup is like he's in his chair, sort of at the front, and then all the other coaches. You know, you got the the, the you know the uh, offensive line coach, the uh, the offensive coach. You know, like everyone, all the the coaches are if you under don't know his it about tree. Football, like, there's a there. bunch all- of coaches. There's a head coach, but then there's a coach that just works with linebackers. There's a coach who just works with with uh, with quarterbacks. quarterbacks, tight ends. And then there's an offensive coach the, who yeah. works with all of those sub coaches. There's like a dozen coaches yeah. for any. It's like team. a military general yeah. staff. Like there's the head yeah. of your air force. There's the like go down to every position. There's somebody whose job it is to make sure that guy can do his job. Yes. Patrick, right. this awesome so, meeting. So, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so Hugh, you know, being the head coach is on one side, and then everyone else is lined up. And then uh, I forget their offensive coordinator's name because he got Haley. fired a couple of weeks back. Uh, yeah, Haley, who came from uh, the Steelers. Um, and he pushes back on Hugh. Like, what was the exact thing that he was, was pushing back on? Working guys hard in practice, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he just he sees yeah. it. He's like, we got a long way to go. We have a culture problem. Yeah, it's a culture problem. Exactly. Like, when people aren't working as and, hard and as they he, need to, we need to go a further way than we have time to go. And you need to do that early in practice camp, just by the way. Like, you, you emphasize conditioning early on because, like, as the season gets closer, you need to be doing the more advanced stuff. You need to be, like, game planning. Right. And so, th- like, a pretty reasonable thing to suggest. And, like... Uh, you know, Hugh hired this guy, right? So you're hiring people theoretically to give you like feedback and, and, and criticism about, you know, how things are going. And Hugh just, he sits back and try, tr- this is, if you ever want to see someone try to pull a power move and fail at it and get uncomfortable the longer the attempt goes on, then watch this scene because he basically is like, hey, I'm in the big chair. You're not in the big chair. I'm actually, I'm making this sound more powerful yeah, than you, you did. Um, and, and, but he tries to like, like when you're in the big chair, you can make the big boy He doesn't decision. even say it. He you want to be a big boy, come. He actually <laughs> says like, hey, uh, Andrew, I forget what the other guy's name is. He's like, what's that thing you always say? What's that thing you always say? When you, 
you can make you make the sh- calls when it's your team. That's right. I make the calls when it's it's my team. I'm driving the bus. You're in the bus. I I hired you, so I'm gonna listen to what you said. But I'm driving the bus, and it all just there's like seven beats, and then Haley is like, yeah. On another note, uh, I think we've made good progress. I guess. And well, and you. <laughs> You just watch all these fucking NFL coaches, like all who look like their cholesterol's through the fucking roof. Like every one of these guys, like looks like they might just be about to face plant midway through any Listen, rant man. on the sideline. Just Listen, so man. all of them as Hugh Jackson. Cleveland has good food. Yeah, yeah. There's there's <laughs> some body like, skyline Shelly just like about to like just block <laughs> block an artery anymore. But like all these guys just turning like florid just like it just it is a row of like purple and pink faces as they listen to Hugh Jackson explain why you know maybe it does look like these players who patently don't give a fuck during practice uh maybe it looks when you're in that chair the little man's chair uh why that's a bad thing but when you're sitting in the big chair uh you know obviously it looks different well, and I'm sympathetic to him. I think there's a bad power play. It falls apart. There are times when you know that he knows. There's a bit early on when when he is you know, one of the one of the, the plot lines of the Cleveland Browns. One of the plot lines in football that happens a lot is veteran mid tier quarterback is the starter, and then up and coming rookie who is a great player has a lot of potential needs to kind of vie for for that starter position. When does that handoff happen? Because if it happens too early, they're not they're not poised enough, they're not comfortable enough, and they could get hurt or they could lose their confidence and become kind of a, a much lower tier quarterback than you hope. If it happens too late, then they go cold. Then they've lost the momentum from coming off of a college game from being the superstar, and now they're kind of like a mid-tier quarterback again. And so it's like the, a good coach can walk that line and find the right moment to, to pull in that rookie and make them the lead. And that can happen in the first year, that can happen during training camp, but it's about when is it. And so you see some of that here with Hugh uh, meeting with Baker Mayfield and being like, so what time do you get to the, to the field today? And he's like, oh, you know, it depends on the day. <laughs> you know, I do a workout and he's like, okay, well, when does uh, what was there, Terrell was their last guy? Was the Terab. last? Terrell, uh, right. And so he's like, well, what time does he come through? And he goes, well, he does a morning, he does like a whole morning exercise by himself. And he's like, well, Bake, you gotta do that, basically. Like, you should start doing that also. What's your morning exercise routine? And it's just like very, it is a moment of smart coaching. And so you know he knows, but he can't quite, he can't quite deliver the punch. He can't quite like actually make the demand. Um, and I'm sympathetic to that. It is hard to be bad cop. It is hard to like walk into the room and be like, no, do fucking better. Because that also doesn't always get results. That's the other thing, right? Sometimes you can be the person who's like, God damn it, no, show up. And you, and especially with a young quarterback, you risk ruining that relationship. Which, I mean, their relationship gets ruined no matter what this year anyway. Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons Hugh Jackson has shown the door. is Because, like, and you start to see it happening over this documentary. Like, Mayfield starts to pick up that, like, there's a weird vibe around yeah. so much about this team. And, like... After a point, like, he knows he's a young star. He knows, like, it's going to be his team in the future. And there's a point where you can start to sense, even, mm. even early, like, toward the end of training camp, he's starting to realize his interests are diverging from those of the coaching staff. That, like, well, and there's a vacuum of right. leadership, right? right? Like, that's ultimately what takes the cue down. Like, is not, I mean, the losses, yes, but it's the lack of any sort of, like, vision or leadership. And I think that's probably the most interesting thing about the, the this whole season of the show is – is like viewing it through the lens of the coach and like and this is probably applicable like broader to like management and like how you lead a team is like how do you how do you lead like what does that even 
mean? What is the balance between being friends with people and being their managers? What, how, how do you have that? When is it the soft touch and when is it like the punch on the arm? Well, and this like, is such a you show people the door. This is such a trick too, because like Hugh Jackson, you start to realize like he may not have any of the stuff you need to actually do this. Uh, right. He just may not be that, but he definitely hasn't figured out what works for him. He has not figured out his style, and at this point, he probably never will. He's not. He does not have what it takes to be a head coach. There's many models you can adopt. There are people who you know the Phil Cower style, yeah. you know. Brilliant football tactician will also just like scream so loud that like the paint will be blistered off the walls in the opposing team's locker room. Uh, you know, you'd have that model. Or this season, I think in Chicago, we got a great coach, uh, Matt Nagy, uh, who seems to have just a really like good down in the trenches, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the guys uh, vibe. There's a lot of different models of this, there's a lot of different modes. But you have to find one that works, and you have to be able to to execute it. And I think the really bleak thing watching Hugh Jackson is that you just watch him try these different approaches and just whiff on all of them, and yeah. you're watching the players. They know it. Everyone knows it. And increasingly, people are just trying to work around him. And it is a really interesting thing to watch uh, because you you know that no matter what story this documentary is trying to tell – uh, in the end, this is not going to turn around. It's not coming back. And it's fascinating to watch. I think when you when you watch a football game, like as bad as a team might be, like in your head, like, oh, these are a bunch of professionals, like athletes at the top of their game. They're always putting in the work. Like they're always like, these are just professionals. And what's interesting about this documentary, um, and this is also true, I think there's one from a couple of years ago, when Jeff Fisher uh, was the coach oh, the of the Rams one. before Sean McVay came in. Winning yeah, is everything. Well, I didn't watch the Amazon one. They did They did a Hard Knocks one, and then they did an oh. Amazon one, which apparently was a lot better than the Hard Knocks one. Um, and Oh, actually, no, the Hard Knocks one was when it was still the St. Louis Rams before they went to L.A. Anyway, um, it's uh, – I completely lost my train of thought. Well, well Jeff Fisher, legendary shitty coach. Just mm, probably yes. like first ballot, Hall of oh. Fame, bad at coaching, kept getting Fuck jobs. Off. Yes, uh, no, it was it was that what's interesting is to watch like it's not players I mean they're being lazy, but not because they're lazy. It's like interesting to watch professionals, like unbelievable athletes, just they have not no care. motivation. Like become disinterested. Which is they have no the like, goal of a good coach or a good boss or a good you know, uh, a parent is like recognizing potential and recognizing skill and talent and, and athleticism and being like, All right, now I'm gonna give you a vision so that every step you know why you're doing this. And they try to do that at the end of the first episode with the, like, what is your why? And it does, like, the HBO original fade out with music playing and, like, solemn shots of people writing family or, like, my mom on, on index cards or on loose sheets of paper. And it's, like, fine. It's fine. But it's not the same thing as, like, you know, something about there's a, a sequence early on where Jarvis uh, uh, just kind of, like, catch, does a great one-handed catch. And someone is like, Jarvis is fucking good. And... The thing that is like, yes, he is he is good. He is good at catching the ball. He is good at he's a great receiver. But he also wants to play the game. He wants to be good. And this is I, I want to be careful to not fall into the trap of what Felix uh, Biederman was doing in the MMA in the the uh, fighting in the age of loneliness. What is it? Fighting in the age of loneliness. Yeah, fighting in the age of loneliness. Um, yeah. uh, thing which is like, oh, and he just wants it more. But but the way the reason he wants it seems to be internal. He wants to be a good wide receiver. He wants to be a great wide receiver. Other players want to play football, but they're not being they, they no one has given them that 
this is why you need to play football well. This is why you should want to be a great wide receiver. And part of a, a coach's job is to produce that desire so that from the beginning of training camp, you are engaged. You are on fire. Like every every play, every practice run, everything you do matters. And it is hard to communicate that. So I'm going to say something that's ridiculously flattering to Joel, our Joel. Yeah. When I play PUBG with that guy, yeah, I become 50 times the PUBG player I am normally. And part of it is because he just knows what the fuck he's about. He's good at this game. Yeah. He will steer things in a direction that like, you will not be in a position where it is possible for you to fuck up the way you normally do. Uh, he will set you up in positions where you can succeed. But the thing is, like... Good players, good leaders can do that stuff. They, they they put you in positions where you can taste excellence, where you can be like, if I do my part, I don't have to, I don't have to carry this entire thing. I can do my right. part and I can be excellent at my part and we will succeed together. And Jarvis Landry is excellent in himself. He's pursuing it like he, he embodies it, but he wants to share it with his team. He wants to be surrounded by excellence. And where you begin to see the friction cropping up is like he's doing what he can with the receiver core. And you start to see it later episodes. It starts to catch on with the uh, defensive secondary as well as they play against him. Like, yeah, tempers get up, but like people are raising their game around Jarvis Landry because like he demands it and he expects it. But every other aspect of this Browns organization, you get the sense people don't have faith that like, you know, the difference between busting your ass or half-assing it, yeah, yeah. it's going to be the same either way. He ain't getting you that W. You know what? I, I think you're, you're very close to being right here, but I think there's one thing that you're, you're – it isn't just a whole – there's someone else who's really busting their ass in the, in the organization who's really trying to make something happen there. It's just like it's inspiring to see Brogan Roback. Oh, my the God. fourth-string quarterback of – he's the backup, backup, backup quarterback. He – there is a – which means he's on the he's practice like, squad. He's not even actually he is on not, the roster. No, 100% right? not there for real. I looked into it. I went to his Wikipedia page, which, you know, shout outs to you, <laughs> Brogan. Uh, uh, Roback played college football at Eastern Michigan where he saw action in 46 games with 745 completions for 8,653 yards and 57 touchdowns. Awesome. Second line, uh, he saw action as a punter. That professional career, Cleveland Browns. He signed as an undrafted free agent on May 14, 2018. He was released on August 31st, 2018. Most recently, he was worked out with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I know that in football, the phrase worked out with means something. It suggests like the first steps of a relationship that could turn into a career. But if your Wikipedia page is like, oh, who'd you last work out with? <laughs> like it's, it's telling if you're a professional athlete, what that suggests. But that motherfucker has a presence. <laughs> um, you first see him in, uh, there's a, a, a kind of a serious scene ends. And it cuts to it's not a serious scene. It's a it's Baker Mayfield singing um, "Country Roads" uh, in front of the rest of the team because it's like his turn to sing in front of the team. You know, gotta let it all down. You're one of us now. He says how much his signing bonus was seven point seven million dollars, and then like says how much, and then he's like, "Sing a song." I love the people. We want that guaranteed shit. We want to know the real like how much money you actually getting. Yeah, and then Hugh is like, uh, "All right, now sing a song in front of everybody." They'll, they'll join in. Pick a song. He's like, someone tell me what song. He's like, just pick a song. They'll join in. And he's like, country road. <laughs> and no one comes in. No one does. He sings half a verse and sits down. And then it cuts to the RV, the quarterback RV. There's a there's an RV where the quarterbacks stay. They don't stay at home. They don't stay at a hotel nearby. They stay in an RV outside of training camp. And 
uh, Rogan, uh, sorry, not Rogan, Brogan Roback, which sounds like a fake name I would come up with, is this, like, bleach blonde, like, wearing slippers motherfucker who is in the middle of, like, loading in groceries or something into this RV. And he goes, people keep tweeting me nonstop asking me, is Brogan allowed in the RV? Is Brogan allowed in the RV? You know, I'm saying last time I checked, I was a QB2. I come in here every single night. I check the fridge. I restock it. I lay the snacks out. And if I don't lay things out the right way and the presentation is poor, they'll have my ass. He's like, I talked to the, our nutritionist lady to ask her. He's like, I thought I was going to get good snacks like Oreos and Pop-Tarts. But they said, no, they want healthy snacks. So I talked to the nutritionist lady. I said, give me all the healthy snacks. And he is just, he gives a tour of the QB RV. He's like, well, this is a room. So this is where, you know, Baker sleeps. And over here, you know, the starter. And then and he's like, you know, I'll sleep here sometimes, or and he points on the ground, somewhere around here on the ground, maybe. He's like a poor puppy. It's amazing. I, I have to imagine he recurs throughout the rest of the season. Oh, yeah, he's a breakout like, star of the show. Someone hire that guy. I mean, until he gets cut. Right, well, like, he should just go to ESPN. Like, he should just be hosting something. He is hilarious. It's 37 minutes in, just watch that clip. You can find it online. It's extremely good. Yeah. I think my uh, uh, my, my remains my all-time favorite uh, sort of like fuck the culture of this team indictment. I, mean, I maybe I remember this because it's related to the NFC North, but so Calvin Johnson, one of the oh, greatest yeah. all-time wide oh, yeah. receivers, like just unbelievable talent. Like he will go to the Hall of Fame despite only playing four <laughs> or five seasons. Um, he left partially because uh, he left a year early, partially because he was trying to negotiate getting out of the Lions uh, doing an extension because uh, he'd had some injuries, but it was the kind of things he could have played through. He could have kept playing, and even though he was hobbled, he was so big and so dominant that he was the kind of guy you could literally just lob a ball but up to. His nickname was Megatron, and that was no joke. Megatron. Yeah, he was an. Um, he, I hated the Lions. I hate the Lions, but he was so mm-hmm. much fun to watch. And he, when he eventually, uh, like, sort of abruptly just like stopped negotiating with the Lions and just up and left, he did this exit interview where like someone asked him like. So, like, what happened? Like, usually when players leave, like, ah, you know, because he was always with the Lions. He was drafted by the Lions, wasn't with any other team. Like, usually that kind of historical precedent means that, like, you know, you're going to be nice to the organization. You'll get your jersey retired at some point. He says, like, why would I stick around and risk getting injured when we're never going to the Super Bowl? Like, that team was going nowhere. Why should I stick with them? And it was just, wow. You just said it, huh? Damn. All right, like, and then imagine like that guy probably one of the leaders in the locker room, and then like that whole team has to go out and just don't go play. play. The game. Just sometimes mm, someone got to say it. Beautiful. Like, yeah. and that's and that's ultimately where the Browns end up, right? Like, this is what sounds like what derailed them midseason is things got like completely broken down between uh, Todd Haley, uh, the offense coordinator, and the coach. Um, but well, Haley Haley wanted Hugh fired. And Hugh wanted Haley fired, so the GM said, "You're both." Well, and he promotes <laughs> he promotes the defensive coordinator who might retain that job. Greg Williams, Jesus Christ! No, I know. Don't. Like, don't do that. The, the thing that makes the most sense is they hire Williams sucks. Uh, the Packers. They just fired their head coach McCarthy. I could see that working yep. out. Uh, but Bruce Arians also said he wants to go. The now. weird thing yeah. that I do want to sound a note of caution about this is it is easy to watch these documentaries and think you know the inside story and you can diagnose from what you have observed as to what is actually going on. like this documentary you're never gonna see an all two tw- all 22 camera of uh, Brown's games. like you fundamentally like don't see what their game plans are, how they bre- how they are breaking down. like it's a reality show to an extent as much as it's a documentary. And like the thing I always try to remember is 
years ago, HBO ran the series twenty four seven, and it was about. I mean, they I, they may not run it anymore. They might still, but uh, we cover two hockey teams leading up to the NHL's Winter Classic. Classic, and one of their best seasons was uh, about the Washington Capitals playing the Pittsburgh Penguins. And in that documentary, the Washington Capitals coach, Bruce Boudreau, came across like, what's that, a herb, Austin? Is that? Yeah, uh uh-huh, a herb. You got it. Yeah, this guy seemed like a total herb. Like, just one of the most hapless, like, shit's just gonna, like, fall apart around this guy. His fly will always be down. His car is never going to start. (laughs) He is always going to spill, like, a, you know, he's always going to spill food on his chest. He's just one of those dudes. And you watch that show and you watch that documentary and he comes across that way in every scene. And you're like, this guy is a fucking clown. Like, get this guy out of here. You want to know why the Capitals always underperform? It's because this, you know, schmuck is leading them every year. Boudreaux is one of the most successful coaches in the NHL. Like, was one of the most successful coaches in the NHL. Like, he was really good at turnarounds. He was really successful. And, like, he had the statistics to back that up. And it is easy in these documentaries to think that, like, all those moments of personal beef and drama, like, are giving you, like, profound insight into why a team doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also entirely possible that none of this stuff really matters. And what matters is Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley couldn't scheme an offense to save their fucking lives. God. Yeah, yeah it's – I am rooting for the Browns this year. I don't want – also, how do we overlook the part that there's a scene, I think in the first episode, where there's a dude giving oh, financial advice, and then later, oh! and then later that Tony dude was Robbins indicted my idol. for, for, for inc- like, the advice he's giving doesn't wait, wait, make this any is the sense, dude? and it, then, is that the, he gets, I think that's the, I'm pretty sure that's fuck the Fuck you, dude. no! <laughs> Alright, so first of all, the, the advice he's giving is about compound interest, right? And he's basically saying, oh, you could put, you could, we could all be billionaires, uh, by the time we're 65, we could all have infinite money because of the way compound interest works. So you just put this money away. And I'm not saying – I'm not saying – I'm not saying that you could not have – it is not the same guy. It is not the same guy. Oh, it's Michael not the same Kendricks guy. Michael Kendricks was the insider trading. He might have been in that room though. I don't know. Um, but he was basically saying like, oh, yeah, you could – compound interest is, is, is an important thing to understand when investing. Uh, but his example ends up being like by the time we're retiring, we're at retirement age at 65, blah, 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 blah. But he's acting like you he, he you would have invested a million dollars at day, the day you were born. <laughs> he's like counting 65 years from age 22 to age 65. This is one of the other things that is beautiful here is – in this series, like, and this is the thing that speaks very much to me, because, like, when I played football, like, I, you know, I was a shitty football player, but I played. And, like, I played D&D with a bunch of fucking linemen and shit like that. Oh, like, hell yeah. The idea of football players just being a bunch of dumb fucking meatheads, like, just isn't true. It's a, it's a world like any other. And on a football team, you will often find all types. And this show brings that out. There's a lot of, like, really sweet, gentle dudes. There's a lot of bros. Like, this show captures that. But the thing I love in that scene is this guy's describing like, yeah, you just get 10% annual returns, compound that annual. You'll be like a billionaire by the time you're 30. Uh, there's this lineman just listening to this and he's like, wait, 10% annual? Yeah. <laughs> like, you sure? Like 10%? Like that's 10%. a lot, man. That's a lot. And the guy turns around and he's like, fuck you. It's easy. You just, Tony Robbins, look it up. Like 10% is easy. He's like, what? What? No, that's that 10% is like, Un, like that's god tier like that's where are you getting that and the guy's like shut up i know what i'm doing and it's this great like 
you got this fucking lineman there who like actually does have some financial literacy and he's hearing just absolute bullshit being spouted and he's like trying to hold up his hand like wait wait uh oh it's 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 a great little beat that that's i do want to at least okay so i i was wrong in the in the insider trading guy being the yeah. guy doing that presentation but yeah there was a a, a player on uh the the browns oh, defense boy. who was found guilty of insider trading was uh put on uh, uh, he was banned for eight games. He was dropped by the Browns the moment he was indicted. He got picked up by the Seattle Seahawks and has been playing for several weeks. And I think he's actually going on IR because he hurt his foot. But he was going to play out the string. Could play through the. He couldn't play in the Super Bowl if the Seahawks got there because that's in February. Because in January, he will be sentenced to up to 25 years in prison. He is going to prison for a, like, <laughs> for a quarter of a century, but he's still playing football because he doesn't get sentenced. He doesn't actually go oh, to jail wow. and get sentenced until January. That's, that's wild. wild. Wait, they, they, did they throw the book at him that fucking hard? He, he potentially up to, seven, okay. up to 25 years. You know, it'll probably be... You know, seven years to four years, good behavior, blah, 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 yeah. blah. But this quote from him, that part is inevitable and I probably won't speak on that. He said, noting he's focused on staying rooted in the present. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Because, you know what? The future doesn't exist, honestly. Burn it all down. Oh, oh that was... So we- I think we got it's a great it. it's a great documentary. You all need to check it out. Uh, this season, the Hard Knocks is fascinating, especially if you like look up what happened to these dudes. Uh, it is a really good documentary. Episode two or three, there's a really sweet uh, chocolate lab uh, that lives in the facility that you meet. Uh, who's the t- who's the tight end that's that's awesome? What's oh, that Kajus? dude's name? Um, yeah, yeah, there's Kajus. kind of a heartbreaking. Uh, he was good. Uh, aside with this. Uh, Total tryhard tight mm-hmm. end who's like just almost good enough to make the roster, but like oh. isn't. And yeah. he has the sweetest story. And yeah, okay, he's into crystal healing and focusing their energies. All right, uh, <laughs> but also he has the sweetest and most supportive dad. Uh, it's oh, his dad is uh, dad goals. I want to be yeah. that father like that. I looked at that was like yes, like I love you, son, for everything that you are. Yeah, it was. So it's it's a really sweet show. Uh, I I really enjoy it. Uh, just prepare for uh, <laughs> to bring just prepare some socially like some uh, social awkwardness as as you watch it when you watch Hugh Jackson and his co- his coaching staff try to inspire and lead. We don't have time for a third waypoint, but because we've spent the last forty minutes, thirty minutes talking about football, then you, if you're like, uh, but football's evil. And, like, I'm, you know, yeah, probably. Uh, go listen to the December 5th episode <laughs> of Citations Needed, episode 59, National Pastimes. Mindless yes, Militarism yes, in American yeah. Sports is a fascinating listen about the the relationship between the NFL and the Major League Baseball uh, with the government, uh, specifically as a, as, as a way of uh, a long-running relationship meant to propagandize the American military, produce, you know, certain uh, sympathies, and feelings towards uh, American expansionism and empire. Um, and also, weirdly, some stuff that I had not thought about in terms of monopoly protections that they're allowed to have. Uh, that, oh, yeah. That is really fascinating. So, yeah, that's my suggestion. All right. Uh, well, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. Uh, you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klepek. 
Austin. And you can find me at Austin underscore Walker. Sorry, I'm using Danielle's headphones, and they're bad. And I realized <laughs> they're terrible. These are terrible headphones. And I, if I turn my head just so, it sounds like you're all in a cave. Anyway, I'm going to oh. talk to her. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. All right, well, that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We'll get back to you on that cave headphone situation. Uh, in the meantime, we hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, we'll be back again on Friday with Waypoint Radio, and I think we might have one more Waypoint Radio uh, for the year that's sort of regularly scheduled. And then we're going to be moving into... I don't know that that's true. I don't think that's true. I think next week, okay. starting well, Monday... We'll, we'll see how it plays out in terms of the schedule, Austin. Uh, that is that is all I will say on the, on well, the we uh, have podcast them We've recorded like seven podcasts in the last two days. We're Not the ones it. we intended to, but yes, it's definitely seven. We The first one we have scheduled, we recorded. All We're right. good. We're good. We're good. We're good. But next I, week. I'm, yes. End at of some year. Point, at some point very soon, the end of year... 2018 review podcast will start to start to uh, kick over and we will be keeping you company through your holiday break and your visits with your family uh so stay tuned for that uh but we're also going to circle back and maybe revisit some of our favorite waypoints to see did twin peaks stay weird i think so i don't know why but i feel like you're trying to throw to me to say like We'll have all that and more tonight on Sports Night, so stick around. <laughs> all right, well, uh, I realized I just found the perfect the perfect ending, which is twi- did twi- Twin Peaks stay okay. weird, and I just sort of let it let it hang. Okay. But I didn't that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. Uh, hope you'll join us again, but until then, do not give in to astonishment. So stick around. <laughs> Next on Sports Night. On Sports Night. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.